It's like tag, tag wrestling or something. <laughs> come on, Grant, come up. I'm done here. Uh, how's everyone doing today? My name is Grant, and uh, I have the privilege of being a pastor here at New Song Church with uh, some really wonderful folks and in this really wonderful community. Uh, and I hope you are well today. I know there's quite a lot of people who are, who are off. They're either concerned about what's going on with the virus and things, or they're currently sick, so let's keep them in our prayers. And some of you, I know, have been going through some stuff recently uh, completely different than that. So just remember, let's have eyes to see, ears to hear our brothers and sisters and, and what's actually happening in their lives uh, and take the time to ask, you know, how are you doing uh, with, a, with a kind of an attitude that you want to actually hear what's happening. Uh, we, we're here for one another. Um, we are going through the Gospel of Mark still, uh, which I'm super excited about, and we're kind of getting up towards the end. It's actually, we're heading into the time of the crucifixion and, and the end of the story. Well, actually, really the beginning of all the best stories as Jesus rises from the tomb. Uh, and we're calling this series, This is Jesus. Uh, we want to not just know about Jesus, but we actually want to encounter him. Uh, and we believe that's something that is possible uh, and is... Uh, something to be desired, especially in, in the midst of such a challenging time in our culture, in our society. Uh, and, and he is endless in all of his attributes. He's is so beautiful. There's so much mystery, so much personality that I believe that in the ways that we are in commonality as human beings, he will meet us there, but also in the ways that we are unique, either in our who we are, our identity, but also our circumstances, our experiences, he can meet us in those exact places. Uh, and really it's about receiving his love, which is powerful, and then responding to it, which is transformative. And that's really what this place is for, this building, like, you know, these walls, uh, you know, this platform, this microphone, these instruments, these musicians, these chairs, me, you, it's all about trying to understand more and encounter more of who Jesus is and then into our community. We are surrounded by people who need to know that there's a God who knows them and loves them. And that's what we're here for, amen? So last week, if you were here, we, uh, we witnessed this powerful visual illustration that Jesus did. Uh, we did Palm Sunday a few months early because that's the story that we were, we were talking about where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and everyone's kind of celebrating and they have palm branches or whatever branches and their cloaks are on the ground and he rides in on this uh, colt, this young donkey. Um, and, and we saw that this was like a really intentional thing Jesus was doing and there was a, a great meaning and impact in what people were seeing now with their eyes. He came into Jerusalem on a colt, not on a giant big white horse, it was one that we hear had never been ridden before, which points to the fact that it's for a king. And he came along the Mount of Olives, which has this sense for these people that this is where God was going to come to rescue them. And so these echoes of Old Testament promises all through the prophets and all these things were, were now appearing right before the eyes of these pilgrims who were traveling in great crowds into Jerusalem for the Passover feast and this commemoration of when God saved them from slavery in Egypt and set them free and brought them into the land. So after hearing probably many of them about this man Jesus and that he was traveling and he'd been teaching and there'd been these miracles, now here he is off of the ancient scrolls and into their lives. So 
we've seen in Mark up to this point, there's been a lot of times when Jesus would heal or teach or whatever, and he would tell people, don't tell anyone what I've done for you or what has happened. There's this kind of secrecy all the way up, but now that's not happening anymore. He steps fully in to uh, this place. His presence is unveiled. But something seems wrong, perhaps, for many people who, under the burden of Roman rule, are seeking a very earthly, now, here and now, freedom from oppression. And something seems wrong. Jesus has no armies. The fact that he comes in on this little donkey seems almost ludicrous if he's going to be this conqueror, this savior. He is not gathered with generals and commanders and plotted to overthrow the Roman authorities. He comes in a manner that makes clear to anyone who sees it that he comes in peace to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace, but we must beware that we do not mistake his calm, peaceful demeanor for a weakness. He may be the Prince of Peace, but as we heard, we're going to hear about it in a minute, because I'm going to get one of you to read this scripture. It doesn't mean he's passive. He is passionate about the glory of God and fiercely in opposition to anything that gets in the way of the relationship between people made in God's image and their creator. Would someone like to read for me today? I'm just gonna, this is what we're doing, we're picking on people today. Who wants to read the text today? Oh, Aaron, I saw your hand first. You can just read it from the screen, okay? Thank you so much. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, 
so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. So Jesus, he comes in peace, but he is not passive. He is passionate. And it reminded me, actually, of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of which I have my tattoo. My daughter did a tattoo for me of the lamppost from Narnia. Has everyone seen that? Isn't that cool? Very talented, very proud of her. And uh, there's space for more, honey. You know, when your daughter wants to practice you know, her craft, you know, she ropes in the family. So, um, but it reminds me of this uh, little bit, but, uh, an encounter between Lucy and Mr. Beaver. And Lucy's a little concerned to find out that this king is not a person, but a lion. And lions are scary, especially to little girls. Um, and so Lucy says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is entirely good. And the Bible calls this righteousness in all the ways we could measure goodness, and he is the measure by which we would say something is good or not good, and the Bible calls this righteousness. But Jesus being perfectly good presents us with a problem because we, if we know ourselves and we see the world, if our eyes and ears are open, we are not entirely good. And this will mean that much of who we are and what we do will stand in opposition to the goodness of Jesus. What are we to do about this? What is the answer, the solution to this discrepancy between his righteousness and our failure to live up to it? And there's a powerful concept here in this part of Mark of Jesus looking, intently looking and observing. And it started in last week's text. If you were here last week and you remember, Mark 11, verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And remember, it's kind of anticlimax to the story because it was a big celebration. Everyone's rejoicing. The king is coming. And then it said that uh, he looked around at everything. And since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So we, we thought about this. What was he looking for? What was going through his mind as he simply is looking around in this temple, this place, this central place where people had come to meet with God? Well, number one, he wasn't checking to see where the restrooms were, knowing that if he came back the next day, it'd be full of pilgrims and it's hard sometimes to get a restroom, you know? So he wasn't doing that. He wasn't looking around to see where the exits were, so because you might get dangerous for him. He's like, where's the exits? Gotta make sure I can get out of here. And he wasn't admiring the architecture like, you know, people do when they go to the Holy Land for the first time and they look around and go, wow, look at the splendid architecture. Jesus was prayerfully looking and hearing and experiencing and evaluating the goings on in the temple in preparation for his actions the next day, which we just heard about. And so in Mark... After hearing this from last week, this text of him looking around the temple, now uh, we hear the very next thing Mark tells us is Jesus looking and inspecting this fig tree. It seems kind of weird that he would do this if we don't understand maybe some of the background and the point. Why a fig tree? 
He's describing Jesus looking around in the temple, and the very next thing he's describing Jesus observing closely a fig tree looking for fruit. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. It's interesting that it says it was his hunger that prompted this. He, he has a need and a longing. It's, he, it is described that way, and then he goes and looks and doesn't find anything. So carefully looking at the temple, carefully looking at the fig tree, what has this got to do with what happens next? Jesus in the temple, the story of the fig tree, him observing after observing the temple, then he comes in and he starts causing chaos. I'm sure you've seen like movies and things that show this and he's, he's got a length of rope and he's whipping it around and turning tables of money over. Um, well, Mark, as we said, is really good at placing things in order to make a point. Uh, and this fig tree story only occurs in one other gospel. It occurs in the gospel of Matthew. And in that one, the entire thing, the fig tree being spoken to no fruit and then withering, it takes place, the whole thing, after Jesus leaves the temple, after causing all this chaos. Okay, But Mark does something different. He splits the two parts. The viewing, the observing of the fig tree, and then the noticing that it has indeed withered, into two with the story of the temple chaos in the middle. He kind of makes sort of a sandwich of these stories uh, with the fig tree story as the bread or lettuce, if you're avoiding bread, okay? Some of you are, as him riding in was supposed to create this picture that would be understandable to the people of his culture who had an understanding of their history and their story and the metaphors and images that were part of it. Like that Mr. Rogers thing I did last, last week. If you weren't here, you missed it, I'm sorry. Uh, although a couple of people had no idea what I was doing anyway because they're not acquainted with the culture of Mr. Rogers, right? But just as that communicated stuff to you guys, I put a cardigan on, I changed my shoes, you're like, Mr. Rogers, okay, that means something warm and fuzzy and nice and caring and loving, right? Jesus riding in, they're like, whoa, he's coming on a colt, what's that about? Mount of Olives, something's happening. Same thing again this time. This is an important figure, figurative way of communicating something, and the fig tree has a very prominent and important place in the story of these people, and Jesus is using this, and Mark is now joining the story together to say, look at this, because in the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. The fig tree was one of many symbols that pointed to this place where people were to come and understand through the people of God that there was a God, that he was powerful, that he was communicating, and that he was a savior. So in Hosea, are you good bearing with me through these Old Testament passages? Because otherwise we're not going to clue what's going on, okay? I'm doing my best to explain it, okay? Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he wrote this, this passage. When I found Israel, this is God speaking, when I found Israel... It was like finding grapes in the desert. Whoever found grapes in the desert, you guys? Maybe a picnic spot in the desert, someone just dumped their grapes, right? When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. And this is kind of what's happening. It wasn't the season for fruit, but Jesus is told, it says he's going to look for figs anyway, okay? It was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. That's a, that's a reason to, to rejoice. Who loves figs here? Not many people, they're really delicious. You guys are, you gotta try, try them again, you know? But at that time, they were a special, special food. So delicious, so versatile, so nourishing. It's a joyful image of Israel, like early fruit on a fig tree. 
Sounds so positive, but that is not the picture that Jesus is currently painting for his disciples and for us. It comes from a different prophet, and it's the prophet Micah, and he says this very different thing. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, but there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you, has come the day your watchmen sound the alarm and now God has come and we hear this story which hearkens and echoes with these passages about fig trees and about Israel and then so we hear after the temple thing Jesus does this very clear demonstration of, of being very unhappy with what's happening in this temple this place that was meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations and then they leave, and it says, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And it's really important to notice that it's withered from the roots. It's not just got lost some loss of leaves or some problem with the branches. It's from the roots. And I think this is really pointing to the leadership who were... Uh, who were responsible for much of this, the bad things that were happening in this culture in this time. And Jesus quotes again from another prophet, Jeremiah. And he says, as he taught them in the temple, so he's done this chaos and with sweat on his brow, he's, he's teaching them. And it says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And in Jeremiah, this is from Jeremiah, said, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate at the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus is not fooled by outward appearances. He sees accurately the condition of the nation to where it has come. And he knows also what is coming as a result of this decay, of this injustice, this broken system. And so this cleaning of the temple, this act that he does, is not just to cause trouble. It's also a visual image of what he's most concerned about. And it is mostly that Jesus is really concerned that this place, especially the, the courts of the Gentiles, the place which has now become a place of trade and commerce, was meant to be for people who were interested in understanding who this God might be and could come and gather there freely and pray without impediment. And it's now full of commerce and money and the whole system is crooked and broken. Uh, and so, uh, so these are some of the things that kind of like echo through what he's doing. Nationalism. It was very much a nationalistic kind of situation, all about Israel first, right? 
that there was people who were meant to hear this gospel from the furthest parts of the world were meant to come and be able to freely hear. Don't oppress the foreigner, give them justice. It was full of consumerism and greed. People were making a lot of money out of this racket. And then flippancy and a lack of seriousness with other people, laxness in worship and power. It was a place of power, this great edifice of the power of these leaders. You know, Jesus doesn't see and judge things from outward appearances. And it's interesting because his disciples are very different. And there's this really great little passage in chapter 13. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Luke, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. I love that Mark put that there. Such a contrast. Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus in, in Luke it says that when he sees the city as he's coming in, this is a different telling of the story of his entrance to the city. He tells us that when Jesus sees Jerusalem, he wails, he weeps, he laments. And he says, how many times have I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You were stubborn and obstinate and the day is coming, a day of trouble because you've turned from that which you most need and it will lead you into trouble. And in 70 AD, the Romans were concerned about the rebelliousness of these people in this city and they tore Jerusalem and the temple to pieces, stone by stone. And that's not where it ended because Rome too, full of pride and whatever was going on there. 400 years later, Rome similarly fell into ruin at the hands of their neighbors. Jesus cannot be fooled by outward appearances. And it's really about this concept of fruit. The fig thing is so wonderful because it's what is produced by life. What is produced? If Jesus had gone and seen a different situation, what might that have been like? But what he saw was something rotten. Let me ask you a question. What's worse than biting it into an apple and finding a worm in it? Biting into an apple and finding half a worm in it. Yeah? You ever done that? I'm getting my water. A little parched. It's about fruit. So just what about us? You know, to the casual observer, we look pretty good. I'm telling you, you guys look really good, by the way, today. Well done. <clears throat> Especially when we're in church on our best behavior. Okay. I just want to say, Jesus is not fooled by outward appearances. He knows you. He knows every part of you. That's a bit scary, isn't it, maybe? I know preachers sometimes say, imagine like, for me, imagine all my intentions, motivations, thoughts, and actions were paraded on the screen one week for all of you to see. Like, you know, my anger, my covetousness, my whatever, right? That'd be, I wouldn't want that to happen, would I? But Jesus sees every single thing, and here's the remarkable thing. He loves us perfectly even though he sees us just as we are. However, as someone once said to me, Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Amen. Jesus loves you just as you are. Take comfort in that. Today, this morning, he loves you. And I'd say nothing you could do can diminish that love, but because he loves you, he wants to see you 
not fall into that place of destruction and ruin, but to actually become fruitful. He is a change agent. That's why it says here, we want to follow Jesus, love people, do good, but the first thing is to be transformed, and we believe that Jesus is transformative. He is a change agent. His love transforms us. What change might he want to cause to happen when it comes to people? Well, it's this. Jesus wants to make us fruitful, and so should we. Jesus wants to make us fruitful. So what sort of fruit are we talking about? Well, it kind of tells us in the passage about what kind of fruit. Because after the inspection of the fig tree and then the chaos in the temple and then the realization that, wow, there's, the judgment seems to have come on this fig tree. There's an illustration here of, of bad things to come, perhaps, if things don't change. Uh, uh, Peter talks about, points it out. And it seems weird what Jesus says afterwards. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, so this mountain, this is the Mount of Olives, right? Literally, he's talking about a mountain, and a sea, which they could probably see. He said, if you take the seat of this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, this could be taken as some kind of like blank checkbook, right? You say, well, it doesn't work. The Bible's not true, because I prayed for that and it didn't happen. I had faith, right? This is hyperbole. This is like a really important thing to realize that it's really pointing out uh, both what the fruit is, what it is that God wants to produce in us, but also it's showing us how far we still yet have to go to get to that place. So he has said, have faith in God, okay? Does not doubt, but believes. And then prayer, he talks about prayer, and he talks about forgiveness. And these are three things here which we can point out. Faith, faith, and prayer, and forgiveness. This is, these are fruitful things, okay? A trust in God, a simple trust to say, you love me, I can trust you. I'm going to get up in the morning with that confidence to trust you, okay? We're not all there, right, are we? We don't have that perfect trust. Prayer, just have that unhindered communion with God. That we're just talking to him. It's not about fancy words and big, long things. But it's just about simply being honest with what's happening in your life and having communication with God. And then forgiveness, becoming a person who doesn't hold grudges, who is quick to forgive because you've seen the forgiveness that you have received and then you offer it to other people. So this mountain sea thing is definitely hyperbole. It's exaggeration. But here's the thing. I think, because some people think that this whole uh, mountain thing also has an Old Testament reference about when God would come, this mountain would be split in two and God would arrive. This cataclysmic kind of event. I think Jesus is saying... If you had perfect faith, I mean perfect, complete, utter trust, if you then from there you had this sense of prayer that was, you know, praying along with the will of God, and you were this person of utter forgiveness, it would happen because it's part of the rushing kingdom of God. So if you were totally perfectly aligned, so if Jesus was following the will of God, if he prayed that mountain would go in the sea, the mountain would go in the sea, but it was not the will of God to do so. So here's the thing. I believe that if Jesus had come and looked around as he did and he found something different, he found that the people were perfect in faith and in prayer and in forgiveness, he would have set up his kingdom there and then. Would have set up his kingdom there and then. But they, did, they were not. He did not find that, did he? 
he found such a different scene, a very human scene, because everyone is wanting to keep and get and, and be in power, and it was just this ugly thing, which is still the same today, I think. So if we were perfect in our faith and trust in God and our forgiveness of others and perfect in our longings and our desires, and we prayed for something, I think we would have it if we had this complete alignment with the will of God. But we are not, are we? Are we? <laughs> Anyone's going to say they are? I'm scared. I might start a church in honor of you, actually, if you're that perfect. <laughs> Having said that, don't stand too close to me, right? But, you know, but, and so this is the process that God wants to do. He wants to uh, make us fruitful. And so every circumstance in life is kind of designed, or he uses it, to bring about that change, to move us closer in alignment with his will, uh, and, and with the heart of the God who made us to walk with other people in faith, in prayer, and in forgiveness. So we join Jesus in his prayer, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus wants to make us fruitful, and so should we fruit. So we should want him to evaluate us. Like we should want to know. We, we should want him to do the same kind of thing. And, and, and actually, if it involves turning over some tables and scattering some dimes and cents, whatever, right? We should welcome that movement, that activity. Because, um, so how, how can we respond to this? Just think about how can you like, respond to this? And I hope that, that this is understandable and that you're following this. Um, the story gives us a couple of options of how we might respond to this, to hearing the story. We're way removed from the story, but the people who saw it in that day did respond, and it can, it can actually be how we might respond. The first thing is this, the religious leaders, how were they? Were they happy? They were furious. They were so angry that it says, the chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this, Jesus' teaching, which seems to be against them, and began looking for a way to kill him. That's one way I think we can respond when Jesus starts to come in, and it's painful sometimes. He's turning things over and changing things, and we feel a conviction that something is broken, and our pride rises up. We start to make excuses. We fear change. We fear losing something important, control or power. We can react like that. I want to snuff this out. Not listening. Then Mark tells us again, though, the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Jesus wanted, right? A bunch of amazed people going, wow, you're so awesome. But that, even that's not far enough. That is only goes so far. You can be amazed about what you've heard, of what you've seen, but there's a step missing there. So we are not perfect, and Jesus is. So what then? What then? Well, this whole story is leading up to the answer, to the what then, because Jesus could have seen the mess of the temple and got an elevator back to heaven. This place is messed up, man. I'm not having any more time with these filthy, awful people and their horrible warlike ways and the way they treat each other. But that's not what happened, isn't it? And judgment was passed. So Jerusalem fell, etc. But what are the bigger story of our lives when Jesus, who's not fooled by outward impressions and who sees us and he desires that we be fruitful, but if, if we're honest, we, we realize we can't get there. We can't change ourselves necessarily. 
And here is the answer. The answer of a righteous God to the unrighteousness of the people uh, whom he loves was self-sacrifice. This is a story. He didn't walk away from the mess. He stepped into it. He took it upon himself. And his love now has extinguished wrath. Mercy has set aside God's anger and life has swallowed up death. And you know, there's these, we, ha- we can read the prophets and see these terrible proclamations of judgment. But in Micah, the one, the one that talks about the fig and all these dreadful things about what was coming, in Micah 6.8, and many of you guys know this, this is what the prophet writes, he has shown you, O mortal, there you go, O mortal, right? I'm so mortal. That's the problem, right? I, I, I'm fallible. I mess up all the time. O mortal, he has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I'm not asking us today to do better, try harder, pray more. I mean, like in some kind of dutiful way where you're watching the clock and you're like, that's not really gonna change it. What will change it is simply to assent, to surrender. So you can be angry and reject it, you can be amazed at it, or you can say, here's me, take my life. Because he did it, and, and that's simply what he was asking for at that time. And those who followed him said, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there, but I see in you something that I need, and I will follow you, and I will try to grow in faith, and in prayer, and in forgiveness, and I'm not there yet. Melody, I think, preached recently about the man whose son was uh, really uh, possessed and things, and, and Jesus says, do you believe I can heal him? And the man said, I do believe. Oh, help me with my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son, the tiniest amount of faith. So the day he visits us, Jesus comes. But I think the day he visits us is today and tomorrow and the next day. And we should invite his evaluation because it's from a heart of love, I tell you. You know, sometimes I talk to people and I realize there's people in their lives who are kind of toxic and broken and they listen to them sometimes more than they listen to the people who actually love them. And if we put it on a grand scale, why would we not listen first and most to the one who made us and who says, I know you and I love you. Why wouldn't we listen to him first and most and often? So we're just gonna take a little moment of just being quiet, okay? And just meet him, let him be here for you. With no judgment, he loves you. And we'll invite him to take up the story again and say, wow, I've been ashamed and I've been hiding from you because I I wanna fix this myself, but I'm just gonna give myself to you today. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's just be quiet.
So we're going to also respond by coming to communion. And this is a place where we recognize that, you know, with the disciples, these 12 men, and there were probably more men and women in that room, and he focuses on the 12 around the table, it was, you know, Peter and John and Judas and all those guys, but there were probably a lot of different people there that day, because it was a Passover meal, shortly after this time. If you don't have one of these, raise your hand and someone will bring you one of these little cups. You got one, Ashley? Oh, okay, okay. And it seemed, you know, the disciples kind of oblivious about what was happening. I think that's really important, you know. Jesus invited them to the table. And they didn't know what was going to be happening next. He, and he kind of suspected that they were all even going to abandon him. And one of them was going to betray him. But he still invited them to the table. Come, come. Be nourished. Find sustenance. Hear the story. Understand what I'm about to do for you. And it says he washed their feet that night. They're dirty, mangy disciple feet and said, serve one another, love one another. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. And they didn't really know what they were doing, but we do this because we now do know that he gave his life for us, that we might receive life. Let's take this bread. Thank you, Lord. And he took a cup, a simple cup of wine, and he passed it around and said, drink from this, all of you, even the one who's going to betray me, because, because you're, you're human and you need this forgiveness. You need to own it for yourself, take it for yourself. And in doing this, this is what we do. We say, this is for me. I am free. I am no longer ashamed in condemnation because Jesus, you have forgiven me. You have done it. Thank you, Lord. And now let's respond by singing a song which Ben just picked without knowing what I was talking about. And I think this is a great song, a whole God moment to sing the heart of worship. Let's sing together.